I invite you to be turning in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going to pick up with about verse 22 this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 22. But before we read our text, we have been studying in the little book of 1 Peter, the little letter of 1 Peter, the idea of the fact of how do we as Christians live a godly life in an ungodly culture. And we've talked about the fact that Peter tells us we are pilgrims. Peter tells us that we are away from home. Peter tells us that we are in the process, since we have been born again, of traveling home. We're on our journey home. Don't, uh, even though we live on this earth and we might have an address on this earth, I live at 7221 Anderson Road, but my ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And I am on my journey there. And if you're born again Christian, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you too are on your way home. But fortunately, just like our cars have GPS, used to we had a little thing called a map, where you had the, remember the little book that had the atlases in them and you could look and actually use them to go on a trip? Now we either punch in our phones or in our cars, the address and our computers take us where we're going. Fortunately, the Lord has given us his GPS system to help us navigate our way home, and that's the Word of God. Do we realize that God did not leave us without a way home? God did not leave us without a roadmap of our journey and how to make our journey successfully. Our Bibles, God's Word, will help us to navigate whatever it is we face in our lives. The Bible is simply a collection of 66 books. The word Bible is, is simply a translation of the word Biblios, which means the books. There are 66 books in our Bible written by over 40 different writers. It covers a period over, the, as far as the writing is concerned, about 1,500 years, these writers had different occupations. Some were shepherds and kings and prophets and priests and tax collectors. Uh, some were seminarians like Paul. Different, uh, different backgrounds. Our Bibles are divided into what we call the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. Used to, we would have Bible drills and, and teach these things. It seems like we don't teach those like we should. And I think our generation today is suffering for that as far as their knowledge and literacy of the Bible. Can I tell you whether it's Old Testament or New Testament? All Scripture, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Everything in our Bible, from Genesis 1 to the very last verse of Revelation, is inspired of God. That word inspired means God breathed. God wrote our Bible. Now, some of it is more applicable to us today than it would have been to, say, old Israel, in 700 B.C., but there's still lessons to learn from all of Scripture. But the sad part is a lot of people go through their lives very unfamiliar with Scripture. And it's one thing for worldly people, non-Christians, 
to not know much about the Bible. I don't expect non-Christians to know a lot about the Bible. However, what's really sad is the fact there are an awful lot of Christians that make no effort to get to know their Bibles. An awful lot of Christians, the only exposure they have to God's Word is on Sunday morning in church. And then after church is over with, they close their Bibles and they don't open them again until the preacher calls out the text for the next Sunday. And I've got a question. If, if the Bible is God's Word and it's food for our soul, and we're going to talk about that a little bit further here this morning, if we ate our physical food that way, I don't know about y'all, but I have to eat more than once a week. Now, in all honesty, I probably don't have to eat as much as I do and as often as I do. But if my physical health, and I understand that my physical health is dependent upon eating so much a day so that I can be healthy. Well, the same is true spiritually. And, and our lesson this morning, and what I hope this lesson will do for us, this lesson is entitled The Everlasting Word of God. And I want to try to encourage you, if you're not studying your Bibles regularly, if, if Bible reading, Bible meditation, and I hate to scare you, but Bible memorization is not a part of your regular lifestyle, I pray that maybe this will pique your interest. And, and if it is, I pray this lesson will remind you why we do it. We don't do it to fill out a, a checklist. We don't do it just to say, Okay, we've read our Bible today. For those of us who, uh, who Bible reading and Bible study is a regular part of our lives, we realize it's just as important as breathing. They asked Charles Spurgeon once what was more important, reading God's Word or prayer, and he said, well, which one's more important, breathing in or breathing out? And that ought to be the way that Bible reading and prayer is for us as Christians. So... If you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22. And we're going to read down through chapter 2 and verse 3. Remember that Peter wrote this letter. Peter did not make the chapter and verse divisions. Humans did that. So this paragraph continues through the chapter break, beginning in 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The Bible refers to itself as the wonderful words of life. And as we look at this paragraph, we talked last week about the same paragraph. We looked at the idea of loving the way that God wants us to love. Uh, we're going to take that same paragraph today and look at the Word of God. 
It's interesting sometimes how you can take a paragraph of Scripture and you can go several different ways out of it. We're going to look at the Word of God today. And first of all, we want to look at the idea of and answer the question, why is God's Word wonderful? Why is it that God's Word is wonderful? And first of all, the first reason why God's Word is wonderful is because it's eternal. It is everlasting. Our verses today, verses 23 to 25, stress this point. The Word of God, verse 22, it lives and it abides forever. It carries on. It's going to continue to live. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 35, also spoke about the indestructibility of God's Word. God's Word always has been. God's Word always will be. Not only in Scripture, but through the work and work and person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word. Jesus is God's Word. But the Word is indestructible. History tells us this. Despite man's efforts to destroy the Bible, despite man's efforts to discredit the Bible, and even though our society today tries to tell us the Bible's antiquated, it tries to tell us that we don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't need what's in the Bible. The Bible continues to be, year after year, one of the best-selling books. People continue to buy the book. People continue. Now, I don't know what they're doing with it. Uh, I, I, you would think that if, if as many people as were buying Bibles were reading and applying their Bibles, our world would change. And, I, and I've got news. We all kind of chuckle about that. But y'all, that's an indictment on us as Christians. Uh, because if everybody that claimed to be a Christian lived and followed God's word the way they claimed to, we turned the world upside down, right? So that's a whole nother sermon. But God's word is eternal. History tries to do away with it. You might not realize it, but the Roman emperor Diocletian in 303 AD, he passed an edict requiring Christians and the Bible, the sacred scriptures, to be destroyed. He started a wholesale persecution of Christians. He started a wholesale book burning, book destroying Bibles, getting rid of all the Bibles. He said, we're going to get rid of Christianity. We're going to get rid of the Bible. Ironically, within 25 years, the next emperor that followed Diocletian ordered that 50 copies of the Bible be made at government expense. Society went down so quickly in the Roman Empire that uh, when they tried to do away with the Bible, they understood how much they needed it. And instead of the government destroying the Bible, the government paid for 50 copies. to be. And that, that was a big deal. No printing press. Somebody copied all those. And so the government paid for that to be done. Another interesting fact. Uh, the French philosopher Voltaire, uh, he's a very well-known uh, philosopher. He was an atheist, an agnostic. Uh, an agnostic is someone who says they don't know whether there is or is not a God. Uh, Voltaire was an atheist. Voltaire said that he died in 1778. And he said that within 100 years of his lifetime, Christianity would be a thing of the past. It's going to be swept away from all the earth. Fifty years after his death, by the mid-1800s, 
Voltaire's own printing press and Voltaire's house were being used by the Geneva Bible Society to produce Bibles. Now, was that God and is that irony? History tries to do away with God's word. History tells us we don't need God's word. But we do. And the Bible continues to live on. Scripture here says in verses 24, uh, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. All flesh here would be humans. Grass would be plant life. And we humans and our grass, uh, this summer could tell us as dry as it's been, a lot of our grass dried out, didn't it? And even the flowers that rise above the grass, y'all, those falls coming, and they're going to die. They're going to be done away with. All of us, we're alive right now. But can I let you in on a secret? If you look out in these cemeteries that are around our church building, all those, y'all know this, all those markers out there, they're tombstones. You know what's on tombstones? The names and birth dates of living people. Everyone out there was just as alive at one time as we are now. But they've passed on. They've gone on. Y'all, one day we will too. And I don't know when that's going to be, but we're going to be gone. The humans, are we pass away. All flesh passes away. Grass passes away. The flower passes away. God's word will never pass away. Y'all, when we get to heaven, we're still going to have God's word. When we get to eternity, we can take God's word with us. And we're going to be worshiping God forever. How true this statement is in Isaiah. By the way, Isaiah is the one that made this statement that Peter quotes in verses 24 and 25. Isaiah quotes this. And Peter quotes Isaiah some thousand years later. And we're quoting Peter this morning some 2,000 years later. And if the world stands another 2,000 years, some preacher some Sunday morning is going to quote Peter again. Because God's word is wonderful. Because God's word is eternal. God's word is everlasting. God's word lives forever. God's word is also wonderful because it brings new birth. It brings new life. We read in verse 23, We are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God. The word of God is that seed that brings life. In the parable of the sower, we're very familiar with it. It says the sower went forth to sow. When Jesus gives the explanation of that parable, he says that the seed is the word of God. God's word is wonderful because it's the seed through which we find life. You want to know how to be born again? Read God's word. You want to know how to be saved? Listen to God's message. You want to know how to become a Christian? Follow the good news of the gospel. Where's the gospel? In God's word. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The word of God is wonderful because it brings new birth. It brings life. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says the word of God 
is living. It's alive. It's like a two-edged sword. It cuts and it examines and it works us. It brings life to us. Jesus said in John 6, 63, The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Y'all, this is more than just printed words. If I want to read printed words, I'll read Dean Koontz. Amen? Or you ladies might read Danielle Steele or Nora Roberts. I kind of like Nora Roberts myself. But, I know that may sound weird and I, I may have just thought brother Andrew. <laughs> but I, Nora Roberts also, for those of you who might not know, she also writes under the pen name J.D. Robb. Uh, and that is a, it's a police procedural set in the future. And I follow all those as well. If I want to read printed word, that's what I'm going to read. Y'all, I read this word because it's the words of life. It'll give us life. You want to know what God thinks? Here you go. I would do well in my life before I make a big decision to ask the question, what does God think about what I'm going to do? Our country would do well before, Congress would do well before they pass laws to ask the question, what does God think about this? You want to know what God thinks? Read it right here. It might be antiquated. It might be old. But it's going to outlast every one of us. It brings life. The word is wonderful because it's eternal. The word's wonderful because it brings life. The word is also wonderful because it purifies the soul. Notice here also in verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit. Where do we get the truth? God's word is truth. God's word will purify our souls. It will clean our souls. Jesus tells us in John 17, 17, by obeying the truth, the word of God, our souls are purified. The word purified means to make something whole, to make it pure, to remove out the impurities. When gold is purified in the fire, it takes out the dirt and the elements that take its value away. God's word will do that for us. Once we are saved, God's word, we, 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 don't, we still need God's word. Too many people, they'll read God's word to get saved and they stop. And they never mature. Their soul never becomes purified. The only way that we can become all that God wants us to be is through his word. We'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. But God's word is wonderful because that's what purifies us. God's word also is wonderful because it can produce maturity. 1 Peter 2 verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The only way we find spiritual birth or spiritual growth is through God's word. God's word's our milk. God's word is also our meat. All that we will ever need to be a mature Christian is found in God's word. Now there's nothing wrong with reading commentaries. There's nothing wrong with reading Christian books. But if you never had a commentary, if you never had a Christian book, 
All you need to be all God wants you to be is right here. If we'll study it with the Holy Spirit's help. Quite frankly, a lot of folks' problems is they've read too many commentaries in Christian books and haven't read enough scripture to, but that, that's a whole other sermon as well. If we want to grow up the way God wants us to grow up, and the way I think you want to grow up and I want to grow up in Christ is to have a steady diet of God's Word. Well, if God's Word is it's wonderful because it's eternal, it's wonderful because it brings new life, it purifies the soul, it brings maturity. How do we learn to mature through God's Word? How do we let the Word of God mature us? And I think Scripture here, our text tells us two ways. First of all, we have to prepare our hearts. We have to get our hearts ready. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. This idea here of laying aside, it tells us there's some things we need to put away. Did you guys know there's more to growing crops than just throwing green beans in the ground and going to get your bucket? You know, used to that's kind of what I thought. I, the first garden I put out, I, I dug a little hole, put my stuff there, and went and got my fork and plate. You know, I was just ready to, uh, to, and I told my grandfather about a week later, I said, nothing's happening. He said, well, son, it takes a minute. And uh, he showed me, he goes, you've got to disc the ground and, and break it up and get it loose so that the, the roots can grow, and you've got to get the rocks out and the weeds out. And, and he said he had his little, what he called, secret weapon. It's peat moss is what it was, but you got to put some kind of fertilizer on it. But you got to prepare the soil for the green beans to grow. Who knew? You had to do this to get the garden to grow. I'm afraid the world, the way that our world's going, with the supply chain troubles and all that stuff, there's going to be a lot of folks in for a rude awakening. Uh, somebody says, I don't know what I'll do if I have to grow my own food. I don't know where little Debbie lives. You know, that, that's the way that, that, that folks are going to be. But y'all, just like you have to prepare the dirt to grow physical food, we have to prepare our hearts. The, the, sower, the parable of the sower tells us the seed's the word of God. The different kind of soils are our hearts. And we have to prepare our hearts to receive God's word and Peter speaks to that in verse 1 of chapter 2. There's some stuff we need to get out of our hearts if the Word's going to grow, if we're going to grow to maturity. We have to get malice out of our heart. Malice is defined as an evil disposition, a malignant spirit, a desire to injure someone. We need to get that out. We need to get guile. Guile is deceit. Guile is craftiness. Guile is Eddie Haskell. Y'all remember Eddie Haskell on Leave it to Beaver? You know, he, he's the one that says, Good morning, Miss Cleaver. You look wonderful today. And then as soon as Miss Cleaver gets out of the way, he's a little rat. That's what Eddie... we got to get rid of that guile. We've got to get rid of the hypocrisy, the envy, the evil speaking. What Peter is saying here is if we're going to grow, we need to get sin out of our life. Can I tell you a secret? The reason 
Christians don't grow the way they would like to grow. The number one reason is because they haven't gotten sin out of their life. The sin that's in their life is combating God's word. And there's not room for God's word to take place. Y'all, there's some things when we're born again, that means a new life. We're supposed to live differently, walk differently, talk differently, act differently. And we can't live like the world Monday through Saturday, come to church on Sunday, and then hope to mature spiritually. There's some things we got. We, we have to prepare our hearts. We have to prepare our hearts to hear God's word. A lot of folks. I've I read a book, a, a statement in a book this week, talking about holiness and how to be holy. And it says that the reason most Christians aren't as holy as they'd like to be is because they choose not to be. And when I read that, it's like a light bulb went off in my head. That's exactly right. Most of us, when there's sin in our lives, it's not a question, is it right or wrong? We know it's wrong. We just choose to do it. God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden they could eat of all these fruits, all these trees, the fruit of all these different trees, you can eat off of just one tree. Don't eat the fruit off of that tree because that tree, that fruit will kill you. It's fatal. It's poisonous to you spiritually. Satan comes along and asks, see, did God really say that? Did God mean what he said? Is God's word true? I think God's trying to hold something back. Now I've got a question. Adam and Eve knew the command, right? They knew don't eat the fruit. They didn't misunderstand. You know why Eve ate the fruit? Because she wanted to. Amen? Bottom line, that's the Bottom with most sin in, that we're involved in, it's not a question whether or not we know it's right or wrong. We just want to do it. It feels good. It tastes good. It, it, it makes us, uh, it, whatever our mind, the pleasure of it for a minute. We got to get that out, y'all. If we don't let, if we won't let the word of God in. We have to understand God means what he says. It's not a suggestion. When God says to remove malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evils, we got to get rid of this stuff. God doesn't say if it's easy. God doesn't say get rid of it if you would like. God says if you're going to grow, if the word of God is going to take root in your heart, you gotta have, it's got to have room. The soil's got to be ready. Your heart's got to be worked up. Your heart's got to be, the, the rocks have to be gone. The clods have to be gone. The thorns, the weeds, all the bad stuff has to be gone so the good stuff can come through. Amen. 
we have to prepare our desire for the word, or we have to prepare our hearts for the word. The second way that we can mature according to this verse, it's found, this paragraph, is found in verse 2. As newborn babes desire the milk of the word. We've got to learn to desire the word. Not only do we have to prepare our hearts, we have to want to learn God's word. We have to develop a hunger for God's word. I have a question for you. How healthy would you be if all you ever ate was a Wendy's Baconator? Three times a day, supersized with a large Coke. And then for dessert, then for dessert, you get you a little Debbie snack cake every day. It wouldn't be long before your teeth would be falling out. You'd weigh 897 pounds, and your heart would stop, right? If you're going to eat healthy, you got to want to eat healthy, right? The other day, we were, Marie and I were in Dixon, and we said, we're, I, one of our great conversations are, where do you want to eat? Half, half, of, half of having a successful marriage is deciding where you're going to eat, right? Because uh, you say, where do you want to eat? Well, I don't care. Where do you want to eat? And, uh, and, and our problem is, Marie will ask me, where do I want to eat? And I'll say, I don't care. And she'll say, well, how about Taco Bell? I said, I don't want to eat there. I just, y'all laugh, but y'all do it too. So we were in Dixon, and she said, she said, uh, are you... Zaxby's hungry, or are you plantation hungry? Y'all know what plantation is, right? Where they got that really good buffet? Farmers, southern cooking, all you can eat, all you can pay too, but all you can eat. And I knew, and I really wasn't all that hungry. But see, they have something at plantation. And by the way, I'd just gotten a stint like three days before. At Plantation, they have homemade banana pudding. I don't mean boxed, jello, instant banana pudding. I mean the real stuff, warm, right out the oven. I knew they had that. And I thought, you know, I might not be Plantation hungry, but I could do for that. But I knew I shouldn't eat it. I know it's bad for me. I should desire to eat no carbs and grass because it's healthy for me. But I don't desire it. I eat what I want to. And I pay the price. We all do, right? If we're going to grow in God's word, we got to want it, y'all. We have to desire. We have to make a plan to grow and study in God's Word and let God's Word take a hold of us. We need to be in the Word until the Word is into us. Amen? To where it makes a difference in our life. 
We live today in a world that has more advantage intellectually than any civilization that's ever existed. Even when I started preaching 30-something years ago, almost 40-something now. I'm that old. But when I first started preaching, we didn't have computers, so it was quite an effort if I wanted to preach on baptism to get the resources together to preach on baptism. Now if I want to preach on baptism, I Google baptism, and there's hundreds of thousands of information. We have more information than we've ever had. And we have one of the most illiterate societies that we've ever raised. Spiritually and otherwise. Intellectually, folks know a lot in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways they don't know anything. Without a doubt, we live, and I'm not talking about us here. I'm talking about our generation in Western civilization. This is pretty well established. We live in a very spiritually illiterate society. Used to, when in the 1800s, when preachers like Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody preached, they wouldn't quote, say, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. They'd just start quoting scripture and the congregation was well read enough where they'd just know where he was reading and they'd go follow along with it. Today, when you call out a Bible verse, most folks don't, I say most, quite a lot of folks don't know if it's in the Old Testament, New Testament, the beginning of the Bible, end of the Bible. And that's on us. That's on us as pastors and teachers for not reinforcing it. But it's also on everyone for not desiring God's Word. Not desiring the knowledge of what God's Word can bring us. Can I tell you, you say, well, I don't get anything out of the Bible when I read it. Can I ask you the question, how much have you put into it? You can't read it just once and understand it. When you look at a piece of music, if you don't know how to read music, it doesn't make any sense to you. It looks like a bunch of lines and a bunch of symbols. But once you learn how to read music, you learn there's a treble clef, there's a bass clef. Those numbers, four, four, six, eight, three, four, they mean something. Those tic-tac-toe boards and little Bs, those are actually called sharps and flats, and they tell you what key you're playing in. See, so for some of y'all that don't know, when you're leading music, sometimes you got to get with the piano player and say, what key are we going to? sing this in. What key are we going to play this in? Because you have to be in the same key. Uh, and the more you learn about music, the more it makes sense to you. Can I tell you that God's words the same way? But did you know as a Christian you have a secret weapon? 
Did you know as a Christian you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? You see, the Holy Spirit inspired these words. And the Holy Spirit is inside you to help explain what these words mean. And do you remember when you were in school and a concept came up in math you didn't understand and you'd raise your hand and the teacher, if she was he or she was a good teacher, they would explain it to you. I, my excuse as to why I, to this day, hate math and didn't do well in algebra, I had a very first year teacher in Algebra 1 and when you asked her a question, she made you feel stupid when you asked the question. And so we didn't ask the question, so we just didn't learn. A good teacher is going to help you find the answer, right? They're not necessarily going to tell you the answer. I've got a seminary professor that he's terrific. And I, I, I'm in online school, so we don't have online classes. But he is terrific about <coughs> corresponding and talking to his students. And so I, but he's got this unnerving habit. When I ask him a question, he expects me to go find the answer. Now he'll point me in the right direction. He'll say, look here, look here. But he said, do your own research. That's what a good teacher does. Not just give you the answer, but show you how to find the answer, right? When you get in scripture and you don't understand it, there's nothing wrong with not understanding it. I don't understand a thing about engineering. But if I have a question comes up about engineering, I know some folks in our church that know a lot about engineering, so guess what? I'm going to go ask them. And they're going to look at me and pat me on the head and say, bless your heart. <laughs> if you don't know about music, ask a musician. If you want to know something about God's word, find a mature Christian and ask. And can I tell you something? Any mature Christian that's truly a mature Christian, they're going to be tickled to death, you asked. The most rewarding thing for me as a teacher, as a Bible teacher, and I don't get to see that as much in preaching. Now, sometimes you get to see it. But especially like in our Romans classes on Sunday night and our classes on Wednesday night, to see the light bulb come on. When all of a sudden you see people get it. Or they make a comment that they say, aha. Now, sometimes I can see it in the sermon. You, can, you, you read a lot in people's faces. You can tell if they don't understand when they start going like that then you probably need to go back and repeat what you just said or come at it from a different way. But sometimes you can see, or it just, and it's rewarding. If you have a question, you don't have to ask the preacher. A mature Christian. And we all know Christians that are more mature than we are, right? If they are truly mature Christians, they're going to be tickled to death that you ask. And they're going to help you. And they're going to show you how to find your answer. And before you know it, you're going to be that person that a new Christian comes to and says, can you help me with this? Because that's the way discipleship works. That's a whole other sermon too. Isn't God's word wonderful?
Can I suggest to you, if you're not reading God's Word regularly, do it. Not just so you can fill out a checklist. Not just so you can say, okay, I've done my Bible reading today. I've done my duty. Get into God's Word because in God's Word is life. God's Word will give you answers to some of the things you're struggling with. God's Word will help you mature. God's Word will bring you wisdom. God's Word will purify you, and it will help purify your heart so that you can be more like Jesus. And isn't that what the goal's all about? To become more like Him. Now it may be that you're not even a Christian this morning. Can I suggest to you that if you're a Christian, the first thing you need to understand about God's Word is it can tell you how to be born again. And what Scripture tells us all is that we are all sinners. You see, God made us, made man in his image. He created the world and the world was perfect. God said it was very, very good. That's in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, man sins. And we messed that up. And, man, and when man sinned, he was separated from God. And Scripture tells us that we've all sinned. And man tries to get back to God in a lot of different ways. We try to be good. We try to do good. We try to be, we, we look in the Bible and find a bunch of requirements that we have to do. We try to be moral. And the problem is no matter how good we are, no matter how moral we are, we can't be good enough or moral enough because God requires that we be perfect. Y'all, I'm not perfect. Guess what? Y'all aren't either. We have a dilemma. You can't get to God if you're not perfect, and we're not perfect, so we can't get to God. God knew that, so God sent himself in the form of his son. Jesus came, lived the life of a human, fully God, fully human, lived a perfect, sinless, blameless life. He did what we can't do. Never sinned. And as a result, he became our sacrifice. He became the ransom price that God used to pay us back, or to buy us back from sin. We couldn't get back to God on our own, so God sent himself to say, and you can't be good enough to get to me, but if you'll trust in my son, if you'll trust in his finished work on the cross, that's enough. If you'll take his righteousness, he'll take your sin. You talk about a great exchange. What would you do if you had a car that wouldn't run? And you heard one of these car dealers have what they used to call a push, pull, or drag sale where no matter what the car shapes in, you take it and they'll trade for So you get it to the car dealership. And the car dealer takes one look at your car and says, that's a piece of junk. 
And you say, well, I know that. That's why I brought it in. Right? And the car dealer says, he takes you to the nicest car on the car lot. And says, see this nice car? Brand new. Shiny. And you want to trade your piece of junk for this? And you kind of feel sort of sheepless. You think, well, why did I even bring my old junky car in anyway? The car dealer says, guess what? I'm going to do it. And he says, and I'll even do one better. It's not going to cost you a thing. You give me the junk car, and I'll give you the new car. Jesus does us one better. We give him our sinful self. He gives us his righteousness. That sounds like it's too good to be true, but it's not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God made a way when there was no way. Let's bow.